0: Welcome back to another thrilling episode of Knew.
1: Thrilling. It's exciting and terrifying at the same time.
0: Spooky tonight.
1: Spooky some might say. Yes. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. Uh, This is our second episode that we're recording today, so we are here.
1: (laughs) We're here and we're queer.
0: Uh Do you have anything to add? No. All
1: right. I did not remember last week's uh, remembrance. (laughs)
0: She swears she has some update or some correction. Every probably, time she's like, I have no idea what it, it is. It was
1: these notes that I was doing when I was like, oh, yeah, I should mention that. So I will probably in the middle of my notes today be like, oh, what I was going to correct was this. So Sick.
0: Well, she said that last time. So. Fuck it. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Well, are you ready? Yes. So I'm sad about mine because I it, it's a favorite distillery of mine. And I tried so hard yesterday to find some of this whiskey so I could drink it while I'm talking about it. And Mm. I could not find anything. Bummer. I know, right? Watch, we'll go to the liquor store, like, tomorrow and you'll have it. Literally. I bet. Anyways, um, I'm going to be telling you about the haunted Buffalo Trace Distillery. Yes, let's go. Okay. So, the Buffalo Trace Distillery is the oldest continuously operating distillery in America. That's crazy. Pretty cool. Back in the day when... The continental U.S. wasn't uh, completely obliterated by humans and things that we build. Herds of buffalo once would go across the Mm -hmm. area of Kentucky where this distillery distillery stands, and they would carve like a path, like a trail, which is called a trace. Mm -hmm. Buffalo Trace.
1: Makes sense.
0: The one that this distillery stands in is called the Great Buffalo Trace, and it led to the banks of the Kentucky River and gave the distillery its name, obviously. Um, Some of the best Kentucky bourbon is made in this area, which is pretty cool.
1: That is cool.
0: Back in the day, a lot of explorers would go through that area, including Daniel Boone and the likes, and they tended to follow the traces that were left by the buffalo because same reason when you're hiking, you go... On a trail. <laughs> a side note, just for some, like, geography lessons, a ford is a natural area in the water that's shallow enough to easily cross. So when you cross a ford, you bring a herd of, you know, horses across a ford. That's what that's called. There's one on the Kentucky River that was being used by European pioneers for making salt, and Native Americans attacked a group there uh, and killed a pioneer named Stephen Frank. And after that, the crossing on that particular ford on the kentucky river was known as frank's ford in Mm -hmm. honor of him later the name would be changed to frankfort and that city is now the capital of kentucky and that is where the buffalo trace distillery that makes sense so just a little fun fact for you um in 1786 james wilkinson purchased 260 acres north of the Kentucky River and that became the heart of Frankfort. He also served in the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War and one of his endeavors was serving under Nathaniel Green during the Siege of Boston. Uh, General Gates sent him to Congress with details on the Battle of Saratoga and he decided I'm going to add my own little spins in this uh, to make myself look very brave and very cool. And so he shows up to Congress, tells them this story of how brave and how cool he was. It wasn't the truth, and I'm sure some of them knew that, but they promoted him past a bunch of senior ranks who were pissed because of this. I can imagine. He also joined with a group called the Conway Cabal. Okay. Uh, Which was a plot to replace George Washington as commander-in-chief with General Gates. Gates asked Wilkerson to resign after finding out that this was happening, because he's like, ah, fuck no, we're not doing that.
1: Yeah.
0: Wilkinson was not done with the controversy, however. In 1787, he declared loyalty to the King of Spain Mm -hmm. while in New Orleans to improve his commercial enterprises in the state of Kentucky. Makes no sense to me, but whatever. He ended up working to get separation for Kentucky from Virginia as well. He later helped take possession of the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. He was still working with Spain at the time of his death, and he was found to be a paid spy for Spain. Fun fact.
1: That's interesting.
0: In fact, Theodore Roosevelt said, quote, in all of our history, there's no more of a despicable character. So this shitbag uh, basically founded Frankfurt, Kentucky.
1: Well, that's great. What a great history. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Frankfurt got its first post office in 1784, and Kentucky became an official state in 1792. Frankfurt became the home to several bourbon distilleries, which is pretty cool. 1773, the McAfee brothers surveyed the crossing at the Kentucky River, and then in 1775, another set of brothers, Hancock and Willis Lee, founded a settlement uh, called Lee's Town. As the settlement grew, a lot of people found the area to be perfect for growing uh, really, really good grains, and Mm -hmm. that is what led to so many distilleries and the start of the Kentucky bourbon heritage.
1: Okay.
0: A shipping port cropped up there as well, and hemp, tobacco, and whiskey were all traded through there. Hancock and Willis Lee started a distillery where the Buffalo Trace Distillery now stands uh, when they founded Lee's Town. To this day, there's a bourbon featuring the name Hancock to tribute uh, Hancock Lee, which is cool. The Riverside House nearby was built in 1792 on the property by a man named Commodore Richard Taylor, and it stands there today, which is badass also. Mm -hmm. It's the oldest house in Franklin County. The first official distillery was built in 1812 by a guy named Harrison Blanton, uh, but it had no name. Uh, He founded the Blanton Lumber Company as well after building the distillery unfortunately the kkk started to rise to power in the area and they paid blanton they basically went to his house after they thought that he was like he had a bunch of black people there oh and uh they were specifically looking for a black man named freeman garrett they couldn't find him so they ended up shooting two other black men on the property oh my god blanton in in that whole scuffle died shortly after but the blanton lumber company stayed in business for 150 years
1: so that sucks. That's so fucked up. You're like, oh, we couldn't find the person we wanted, so we're going to kill everybody else. Right. Like, just because they're black.
0: Mm-hmm. The- so these are all, like, very short stories of, like, things that have taken place on the property, but they're showing, like, a lot um, that has taken craziness. place. Uh, in 1870, a man named Edmund H. Taylor bought the distillery and gave it the name the Old Fire Copper, mm-hmm. which was its first official name. A lot of people in the area and, like, history buffs uh, refer to it as the OFC. He used wood fire and copper stills to distill his liquor, and he also built another distillery at the cost of seventy grand, which uh, was a lot back then, yeah. He was a descendant of two presidents, James Madison and Zachary Taylor, which is how he got the last name Taylor. That's just a little fun fact in there. And then in 1882, the OFC burned down after being struck by lightning, and he rebuilt it like right away. After that, a guy named George T. Stagg bought the distillery. That was about eight years after it burnt down and was rebuilt. He developed the first ever climate control for distilling whiskey by uh, using steam heating in storage warehouses. He also expanded the property. He was born in 1835 in Kentucky, but he moved to St. Louis to become a whiskey salesman. And then he later met up with Taylor and the two are considered icons in like the distilling world. And in 1904, the distillery became known as the George T. Stagg Distillery, and it held that name for a hundred years. Dang. Mm -hmm. 1897, a guy, Albert B. Blanton, who you might recognize that name from just a couple paragraphs ago, he joined the distillery as an office boy at the age of 16, descendant of harrison blanton who first distilled whiskey there uh albert ended up being promoted through the years stayed on site that was his only job he learned every single facet of you know running that business and he became president of the the distillery in 1921 he ended up spending 55 years producing and promoting kentucky straight bourbon whiskey dang he kept the distillery alive during prohibition and then also after a devastating flood in 1937 And he had the operation back up and going the very next day after this flood just destroyed everything. He was able to keep the distillery in business during Prohibition because he went out and he got one of these like special, it was like one of four permits that were given out by the government that allowed them to make whiskey for, quote, medicinal purposes. And during that time, they bottled one million pints.
1: One million? That's a lot. That's too many. Okay. Prohibition. That's true. You're right.
0: (laughs) He ended up also building Stony Point Mansion on the grounds, which overlooks the distillery today. A clubhouse and gardens were installed in 1934, adding to just the overall beauty of the entire property. He ended up retiring in 1952, and then a guy named Elmer T. Lee took over operations in 1968, and he kept that going until 1982, when a New York investor group bought the distillery, which was not good. Moving from a family-owned A company to an investor group was terrible, and the employment there dwindled to only fifty people. And then by nineteen ninety one, it was like just about to close. Mm -hmm. They did uh, the distillery then returned to family ownership when the Sazerac Company bought it in nineteen ninety two, and then they refurbished it and renamed it the Buffalo Trace Distillery in ninety nine. And then in two thousand one, it was placed on the National Register of Historic Places. You can go on tours, uh, like, six days a week. They don't do anything. They don't make anything on Sundays. Like, literally the whole thing shuts down. But every other day oh, of the week, uh, you can go six days a week. And then you can go on, like, a regular tour or on a ghost tour. Because guess what? Super duper haunted.
1: Yes. Oh, my gosh. Where is... Oh, my God. We have to do this.
0: It's in Kentucky. You think we're going to Kentucky ever? When?
1: We have to go to Waverly Hills. Okay.
0: That's true. That's a good point. Yeah, a lot of tragic and tumultuous history that I kind of glassed over led to a bunch of ghosties. Shocker.
1: I love ghosties.
0: Ghost hunters visited the distillery to do an investigation, and uh, every single member of the team had an experience, and they identified what they believed to be 27 different ghosts.
1: That's a lot.
0: The one encounter that got everybody's attention was when two main hosts were, like, Pinched on their butt.
1: <laughs> were these males or females? Males. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> That's very interesting. I wouldn't have thought that they were pinched in the butt. Grant,
0: Grant and Jason. Were pinched oh, on the butt.
1: Grant and Jason? Oh, no.
0: They were both in different areas when they reported in, and they both reported the exact same thing, which is That's wild. interesting. There have been stories that employees and visitors to the distillery catch the smell of cigar <laughs> smoke, hear footsteps in places where there aren't people, uh-huh. uh, the Riverside House which is on the property, is a very white building that is rumored to house a bunch of different ghosts, one of which is Commodore Richard Taylor. He's been seen in an upstairs window, and then there's also an unidentified young boy in that house as well. Along with that, there have been sightings of a gentleman wearing a like an old suit, old-fashioned suit and hat mm-hmm. at the Stony Point Mansion, and some think it is Albert Blanton, who died in the mansion in 1959, so that checks out. During a Christmas lighting event on the property, a guest took a picture of the building, and like, once they looked at the shot, you could see a figure standing in an upstairs window, and there's nobody in there, supposedly. Interesting. And then, a few months later, the tour guide tried all nine keys available to unlock the mansion where Mr. Blanton had lived and died, and not a single one worked, which forced the ghost tour that was going on to be held in the parking lot.
1: Oh my god, how bummer. What
0: a, right? I'd be
1: pissed. I literally asked for my money back. Yeah. (laughs) Uh,
0: His housekeeper, Sarah, is heard humming through the mansion as well. And then even in the summer, people get freezing cold in the basement. Huh. Warehouse C has both alcohol-y spirits and other (laughs) spirits.
1: Is that a written joke? (laughs) (laughs) You make fun of me for written jokes all the time.
0: There was one incident. I didn't get a. I got like a couple of sources said very differing years, so I'm not gonna put a year on it. Um, but business as usual was happening in warehouse C, unbeknownst to a bunch of employees that were there. There was a wall that was about to collapse. And wait,
1: like on purpose, or like it was just no, it's just gonna oh, okay. collapse. I thought that like the owner was like, I'm gonna take out this wall and tell his employees
0: during business hours.
1: Yeah. Never mind, okay, <laughs> that'd be a really shitty owner. um,
0: so a bunch of these employees heard somebody scree- like screaming, like, "Get out, Everybody needs to get out like they thought that somebody had seen something. I was oh. talking somebody, but uh once they all got outside the building, everybody talked, they were like, "Who the fuck was yelling? Who saw that first? Nobody yelled it. Nobody knows who did it." Either nobody admitted it or it was a ghost that was warning them to all get out.
1: I believe it was a ghost. So
0: that is just a taste of all the ghosts there. There are obviously many more, but you will have to go there to see them. So if you end up making it out there, all the tours are free, complimentary, and include free tastings of whiskey.
1: Wait, even the ghost tours? Yep. So then I wouldn't ask for my money back.
0: Correct. (laughs) He would spit that whiskey back out yeah. or ask for more.
1: Yeah. I'd be like, since I have to sit in your parking lot, can I have a free bottle of whiskey?
0: You don't even like whiskey. My
1: husband does. <laughs> so I'm sure. Uh, my
0: sources for this came from History Goes Bump, which I've used a ton for my research, but it's a great podcast. And then from the Buffalo Trace uh, website itself, they talk about all their ghosts and That's so cool. history in depth.
1: So I love it. Yeah. Um, Well, I'm talking about something completely different, but still spooky, and I'm on the West Coast. Nice. Are you ready to hear the tunnels under Seattle? Finally. I've kind of talked about this before, and I've definitely told you a lot about it, because when I went to Seattle with my friend, we did the Beneath the Streets tour, which was super fun and interesting, and I guess I didn't realize, like, I just thought that it was, like, secret tunnels built for... Uh, purposes that secret tunnels are made for for like illegal things and prohibition and doing nonsense but apparently I was wrong these tunnels were made like intentionally but like on accident as well because they were like well we built our own graves and now we have to fix it I'm gonna go into kind of like the history of Seattle first because I think it's very interesting basically when Seattle was first conceived it was like many places in America indigenous land so white people.
0: All of America.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm trying to like not be so mean to uh, white people, but.
0: It's hard. They make it so easy. They make
1: it so easy. So this area specifically belonged to the Sequamish and Duwamish tribes. And I apologize if I'm pronouncing those wrong. Um, but they lived there for so many years before settlers decided to ex- like expand into the area because of. God knows why, and they developed it themselves. So they did that in 1851, and they established a town site in which they first called New York. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. And then eventually they added... New York. Yeah, New New York. (laughs) West New York. (laughs) Eventually they added a word from Chinook uh, jargon, meaning by and by, and so they then changed it to New York Alki. So... That's fun. But then eventually they moved a little bit of a distance across the Elliott Bay to what is now Historic Pioneer Square Street in Seattle, and they named the village-slash-settlement Seattle in honor of the Duwamish Indian leader, or Native American leader, named Seattle. So I'm assuming his name was not pronounced that way because of his native tongue. However, white people were like, I can't pronounce that, so we're going to do Seattle.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: So... There's that. And then also when they were in Seattle, they realized, like, this is really hilly. And, like, a lot of people are trying to, like, move here. And so what a better way to coax people to move here than to flatten everything out. And this knowledge that I'm speaking of is just straight from my little brain here about my tour from the uh, beneath the streets. Because what I could find really didn't talk about this, which I think is very interesting. It's probably because they fucked up. So they basically... All of these hills on Seattle, like, they they had people living there. Everything – it was, like, a city already. It was, like, in the 1800s, late in the 1800s. And they decided, we're going to flatten this out to make it a little bit more pleasant for people to come here and, like, expand, basically, our population. So, to do that, they were like, should we just blow up these hillsides or dig it up? Like, what would be the most cost effective? What would be the most labor, like, less labor intensive? What do we do? So, then they realized, we have an ocean. Why don't we use water? So, they somehow were able to get, like, hydraulic water going through these hoses and were able to cut out all of this rock and hill and dirt by blasting it basically with high powered water (laughs) and they did this to level out seattle to make it sea level which one of my sources i can't remember which one but i'll listen later um said that if they had talked to the indigenous people there they would know that that wasn't a good idea because ocean waters rise in the area and they rise like I don't know. I don't know how the ocean works, but I know it goes up and down. And in that area, it probably goes really up and down. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So that's probably why it was hilly. So, again, it was made out of sea level, so it caused a lot of flooding when the city was starting to expand. Not only did it cause a lot of flooding, but that flooding caused sewage issues because their sewage was not created mm-hmm. like what we know today. So it brought all that stuff to the surface and it made the city stink and it was disgusting, as you can imagine. And then, so they had that issue that they were dealing with from creating a flat area. And so then they decided, let's make everything out of wood, which is what, it was a common thing back then. We talked about that with San Francisco. All of the buildings are made out of wood. It just was more feasible and easier, I guess. But that obviously is a bad idea. When June 6th, 1889, the Great Seattle Fire destroyed more than 25 to 30 blocks of the downtown area in just 24 hours. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, it was finally got under control around three in the morning. It affected more than 500 people who lost their jobs, like with businesses and livelihoods. And unfortunately, uh, not unfortunately, I mean, uh, for, uh fortunately... That's a word now. Fortunately, (laughs) nobody died because there's no statistics on that. So that's good. So the loss, though, was estimated to be about $8 million. And the town center was just destroyed. So then they were like, well, fuck, what do we do? But I think what's very interesting to me is like how this fire got so out of control. Do you want to know how it started? Yeah. A carpenter decided that he was going to boil his glue on the stove and forgot it. <laughs> so then it spilled over, caught on fire, and cuz he's a carpenter, this was in his shop. Mm. So it was just covered in sawdust, wood, all, anything that's like explosive. Turpentine,
0: flammable, it was yeah, in there. It
1: was in there. So it just go- it just like was out of control instantly. But then to turn that out like even worse, it finally hit a brewery or dispensary, I don't- not a dispensary, um a brewery or a distillery because it hit that building that had all the alcohol in it, and just exploded. Like, literally, it was a huge, huge bummer. So, that sucked. (laughs) Because of that, they were like, well, shit. We have half of our fire, or half of our fire, half of our city is, like, gone. Uh, We have floods that are taking over, and then we have shit on our streets. What (laughs) What do we do? So, they decided, we're gonna just create we're just gonna lift we're just gonna raise it again we're gonna redo undo what we did before by blasting out all these hills and raise it again so they wanted to raise it about 12 to 22 feet above what the original streets were and that's because like depending on where they were elevation to make sure it was like as Still as flat as I wanted it to be, but Mm -hmm. higher up in the ground so that the water didn't get to it. And they were gonna rebuild everything out of stone instead of wood. It's a genius, genius move. But how do you, how do you raise a town? How do you literally like, like do that? Like, it's crazy. You have to like rebuild the streets, rebuild the everything. So it took years and it took a lot of time, but what they did was they separated storefronts from the original roads by creating alleyways. And then the streets themselves were hollowed out and then filled with concrete. So basically, if you imagine, like, the storefronts that were still standing, if any, like, buildings, basically, they would create, like, barriers, like a wall out of brick, where this, the, like, little alleyway, so you can get to the business still, but then on the other side of the brick is where the street was, And that's what they filled in with concrete. Does that make sense? Yeah. So they started to do that. And by building those small passages to the businesses, the businesses were still accessible if they were still running or like were able to fix their businesses from the fire to continue business as usual. So they had ladders that people would go down to get to the businesses, which is not very handicap accessible, but it was the 1800s. So they... Those businesses that were running had started to rebuild their business into an upstairs, basically adding a floor so that their business could continue once the filling of the streets was over. So it was this just huge construction project that was happening constantly. And so, so most of the businesses, once the building was done and the construction in the area was done, they just conducted their business from the upper level and kind of used the lower level as a storage space or in addition to their business, depending on what kind of situation they had. Of course, only when the construction was done, because otherwise people couldn't get to the store because they were still using the ladders. However, some, even after the things were filled using the ladders, they just continued having the lower level as their storefronts. They were like, I'm not building a another building. I don't have the money or like all of my resources are here, you know, Um, depending on what the situation was. So then once the businesses had their situation handled and the streets was filled, then they built glass skywalks, basically like pathways to now on the current above street level to connect to the businesses so that there were pathways, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And also it's supports the current sidewalk today. So it was, like, very instrumental with, like, that stuff. And we'll talk about the skywalks again later. But eventually the underground became a haven for rats because they didn't fill in those little pathways that were between the concrete and the businesses. So then in 1909, the city condemned the tunnels in fear of the bubonic plague and disease because of the rats. And this was... This basically forced businesses to relocate. So whatever businesses were still operating from down in the tunnels, could no longer do that. And what remained of the tunnels literally was just left abandoned. So everything like furniture, signs, like anything that was down there, it just was literally like people got up and left, didn't even take anything. So with time, uh, once the diseases and the plague wasn't that big of a deal, they probably got the rat problem under situation. uh, Seattle (laughs) underground became a haven for now the city's homeless, for criminal intent, like gambling houses and brothels. Which is what I would have thought that they were originally made for. Not a complete city that was underground. But even then, with more time, the tunnels had been cleared out by 1940. I'm not really sure why, if there was a specific reason. It just said that, like, by 1940... Everything was about the tunnels had been forgotten and had been that way for a couple more decades until 1965. A journalist, Bill Spiegel, started to do research on the tunnels and decided in order to bring business back to the downtown area that wasn't really flourishing anymore, he was going to start doing historical tours. He's like, what a better way to do historical tours than talk about the city that's literally beneath our feet. So he is one of the major tours that you can still take today. Obviously, it's not him running it, it's just his right. name, and people have taken the tour into another area maybe expanded on it or just like kept it as it was but also there's a sister company that is obviously sister so it's part of the same area called beneath the streets which is the one that i did which was also phenomenal they give you different areas of tours to go to so if you want different areas to look through the only like safe and recommended places to go underground are where those tours are so it was fun with my tour we like spent some time above ground and talked about the history there too right. because obviously since not all the tunnels are good to go through anymore uh they we had to like walk to other areas to get to other tunnels which it was not a far walk at all but it was fun everything that you see down there in the tours is legit like i said it was just up and abandoned everything The furniture, there's like shoes laying around, there's signs laying around, there's like sewing machines, which I'll talk about in a second. There's so many like cool things uh, down there that I I have several pictures. I'll post them on the Instagram, but it's so cool because everything's legit. It it might look staged, but it's 100% legit. Like they haven't touched any of it. Um, maybe, like, for, like, construction purposes and, like, there's, like, when I went there, there was, like, cones that were, like, oh, please don't step here. Um, so, that's really cool. Now let's talk about the spooky stuff. Yes. I lied. I was gonna talk about the skylights, uh, the grass, (laughs) the grass, (laughs) the glass, um, skywalks again. So when you're in the tunnels, those skywalks, uh, they were made of glass because it was like a natural sunlight. So for people that were still going into the businesses could go into the tunnels and see where they were going. However, like, obviously they were condemned and whatever. But it's a really cool thing that you can like look up and be like, oh my gosh, I can see people walking if they're clean enough. (laughs) When I went there, we couldn't see through them. So it was also dark. That might have been it. I was
0: going to say, why wouldn't they... Clean them. That's easy.
1: Yeah, literally easy. Anyways, so it is haunted. Surprise, surprise. So, most of my information for my spooky stuff I got from the ghost in my machine.com, which is kind of like a blog, but they did really well research. And so, I thought it was interesting to see uh, what all that they could find. And it basically collabed with everything else that I could find, but I mainly got everything from them. So, one of the major spots that it is reported for high paranormal activity is a bank that obviously used to be there and it's specifically a vault of the area this bank was once open 24 hours this was because the bank was created and geared towards those that were working the klondike gold rush because they were coming into the city all hours of the day coming from alaska and Mm -hmm. so when they got there they wanted to trade in their gold for cash once they got into the mainland. So that's what they were there for. They were basically a trade bank. So one of the well-known ghosts in the bank area was Edward. His He also apparently goes by Eddie. He's known by that name because of multiple uh, AVPs, which is electronic voice phenomena from different people recording and stuff. They'd be like, who are you? What's your name? And he'd be like, Eddie. Which this sparks my memory of what I was going to correct before. <laughs> so before i was talking about our emf reader and i was calling it electronic magnetic whatever the the same thing it's like i don't i can't think of it what it's like it's electric magnetic fields what is it electromagnetic electric thank you electro electro
0: magnetic -magnetic
1: fields fields. okay so i fucked that up so that's what i was gonna correct thank you
0: barely a fuck
1: i just feel like i don't know i
0: tomato potato
1: i feel like an idiot being like i use this equipment i don't even know what it stands for anyways so back to the evps so they got his name and apparently this is like an alleged story but in the 1890s the 1980s a (laughs) tour guide once saw an apparition that they believed to be edward they stated that he was a tall man wearing suspenders and had an amazing handlebar mustache i wish good for him i would
0: do that (laughs) would you like that If I could do that.
1: I would love it.
0: (laughs) She's lying.
1: (laughs) I would love it only because that means that, like... She's, like,
0: holding back a gag.
1: (laughs) It's not true. I just... (laughs) I'm not a fan of mustaches, really. But handlebar mustaches are... It's dedication. So if you can grow that, like, that's impressive. You know? Um... Anyways, it was believed that Ed- Edward was a bank teller there who had been shot and killed while working. However, nothing's been proven by any records uh, that I could find or that this source could find, so it's kind of a little bit more of an urban legend. But also, I'm thinking with times of, like, the Klondike gold rush, were records really kept that well, and also how, like, like if there were shootouts, like, are you going to report, like, on every single right. shootout? Like, I imagine that it was pretty, it was probably pretty uh, criminally filled then Mm -hmm. with like just people coming through whatever anyways um there's also reports of a female ghost in the area who supposedly was killed behind the vault so i'm thinking like an alleyway because you don't really can't get behind a vault there's also cold spots and disembodied voices that are heard in the area so now we're going to talk about the oriental hotel um it was once a popular spot for the seamstresses of seattle which, if you, you could see my face right now, you'd probably assume that seamstresses meant something else. Ladies of the night. It did mean ladies of the night. Oh, no. But, um, <laughs> basically, they would say, did they also you, would sell? you... they Huh?
0: Did they sell also?
1: I don't... That's the thing. Is like, I told you, you can see sewing machines down there. Where I mm. went, there was a sewing machine. He told us, he's like, this is where the brothels basically happened, where they would say, do you need a seamstress for your garments? And the gentleman or the patron would say yes i would love a seamstress for my garments so they needed the sewing machines to make it seem like a front for what was really going on Uh. i imagine like during the day maybe they did fix garments and stuff like that just to keep business looking legit but um (laughs) it was definitely a code word So, in that area, there have been shadow outlines of women walking around and odd noises being heard. There's one EVP that was talked about a lot that is very popular where you can hear a loud bang and then a person recorded believed to have been said, quote, I kicked the can, end quote. Which, when they did some investigating to try to figure out what the loud bang was, the people that caught the EVP found that a trash can had been knocked over. So, Mm. very interesting Um, There's also a tale of a woman in white who is seen in the area of the tunnels. It's always a woman in white. So if you take the Bill Speedell's tour of the area, there's apparently in the first section of the tour, uh, like underground tour, there's a window. And a lot of people have reported to have seen a woman's face in that window. So I'm not sure if she was like a shop owner, like peeking out to see how business was doing when she could only see concrete. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Um, there's also sites of a woman in Victoria area clothing uh, that will sometimes photobomb people on the tunnels. Hmm. Like on that specific tour of the Bill's Speed Owl tour, people will take photos. And like a lot of people have come back saying like, I didn't know that you guys had like um, actors, actors yeah. like doing that stuff. And they're like, mm, well, we don't. And they're like, what mm-hmm. the fuck? So that's fun. That's all the spookies that I could find, but if you're looking for more, there is an episode of Ghost Hunters, season 3, episode 13, called Lost Souls, where they investigate Central Woolly, Washington, which is the Northern State Hospital, which looked super spooky, and I might cover that in a future episode, because that Sick. looked insane. It was like a, a sane, insane asylum.
0: I think you would like that show a lot. Maybe. It's it's a lot less like theatrical than ghost adventures and like when they don't get evidence they don't pretend like they got evidence. Oh yeah, that's true. They'll just tell the the people and they go to like houses, people's houses who Uh are having trouble. So
1: is ghost adventures. House calls.
0: They've been on for like 10 years and they're just now like, I guess we'll go help people. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: But anyways, in that episode, not only do they do the the hospital, but they also do the underground tunnels in Seattle. That's cool. Yeah. So all of my sources were com, Again, theghostinmymachine.com and then seattleterrors.com, dot seattle.gov. That's what I got. Super nice. Love it. Thank you. Good job. Thank you.
0: You should take me next time. Yes, I do the tour.
1: would love to go back to Seattle. Yeah. I would love to go
0: back. Did our friends who recently went, did they go on that tour? I
1: don't think so. I think they, they did a lot of, it. huh?
0: They did a lot of above ground activities.
1: Above ground museums. They did whale watching for like half a day or so. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they did a lot of other fun things.
0: Cool. Yeah, I'd be down to go. I love that area. So I do too. Okay, yeah. let's do it. Okay. Do you have anything else?
1: No. Okay. Absolutely nothing else. I finally figured it out. Sick. Okay.
0: <laughs> uh, well, you can find us on Instagram at New Podcast, and you can go from there to our link tree, which will take uh, you to our Gmail or to our Patreon or to whatever else you want to go to. So.
1: Yes, indeed. Have fun with okay. that. Okay. Goodbye.